Well, as we go on in worship now, we want to turn our attention to God's Word. Our main text for this morning is Isaiah 51.9 to Isaiah 52, verse 10. We're just going to read a selection of that this morning. And one phrase that uh, we'll see repeated in the text this morning is the, the phrase that we must wake up. Uh, and so the, the main thing that I want you to see as we're reading this text and in the text we read afterwards is the glorious things that we have to wake up to. Um, how, easy it, how easy it is for us to be asleep for so much of our lives, to not see the glorious things that God is doing, the glorious salvation that he has provided, to not be awake to what God is doing on the earth today. And so Sarah will come up and read for us from Isaiah 51, 9 to 16, and then Tom, Isaiah 52, 7 to 10. Uh, and then Krista will come up and read for us from Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. And this will talk to us about how in the new covenant, we haven't come to physical realities that we can see with our physical eyes, but we've come to glorious spiritual realities that we must be awake to. And then lastly, Moyer will come and read for us from Romans 8, verses 19 to 25, which speaks of how great a liberation we have. But again, it's not something that we can see yet. It's something we have to wait patiently for. And so Romans 8 will remind us of that. And so Sarah, if you'd like to come on now to read for us from Isaiah 51, 9 to 16. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where, where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, You are my people." Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and bring good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Hebrews twelve eighteen to 24 For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet 
and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, there's a very uh, popular storytelling trope these days. I'm sure it's actually been a, a method of storytelling for a long time. It's always a good storytelling tactic that draws people in. And that is that there's a main character who has some moment of awakening and realizes that the world is actually a totally different place than what they formerly knew or imagined. Uh, when I was younger, probably the most well-known example of this was in the movie uh, The Matrix, where Keanu Reeves wakes up one day and realizes that he's actually just a, a heat source in a pod and he's not really living in the world that he thought he lived in, that that world was just a computer simulation, and he realizes that the world is totally different. It also happens in the Chronicles of Narnia, where kids go through a wardrobe, and all of a sudden they realize that there's this whole other world on the other side of this wardrobe. Or Harry Potter is another good example of this, where there's a few people who have this gift of seeing magical things and using magic, and others just can't even see that magic is a real thing. It's a big theme in, in spy movies and spy stories when other characters get sucked into this world of espionage that they never knew existed before. Before they were just blissfully happy thinking that the world was a safe and secure place, but then they realize some secret plot that they're caught up in and all of a sudden their life is totally different. Well, I think the reason why we find this particular method of storytelling compelling is because it itself is a reflection of the grand story of creation and redemption that God himself is telling. In other words, every human on earth has this sinking suspicion that there is more to life than meets the eye, that there is something more going on on the earth than just what we can see with our physical eyes, what we can touch with our physical hands. We know what our eyes tell us, and we know that science supposedly tells us that this is all there is, and yet we all have this sense that there must be something more. There's something missing from the explanations of the world that we so often hear just projected on the news or taught in the classrooms. 
And again, we can only feel this way because this is how God actually made the world. He made the world so that there is this hidden realm that we cannot see with our physical eyes. And God has given every single human at least a small sense that this is so. It's almost like a sixth sense. Like we know that there's something there and we just can't quite tell what it is. We're unsettled because we know that we're not seeing all that there is. John Calvin called this the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine that every human being has. The Bible gives a name to this aspect of the world that is really there, but that most people aren't awake to. The Bible calls that world heaven. It's almost like a a layer of existence that's all around us, but that we cannot fully see. The Bible calls the, the layer that we are already familiar with, it calls that layer earth. And these two layers, heaven and earth, are introduced in the very first verse of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So to simplify it, heaven is simply the place where God lives. Heaven is the realm of spiritual beings. Earth is the place where we live. It is the existence of physical reality. The Bible teaches that heaven and earth are actually not two totally separate places, but can actually be merged or separated to varying degrees. That's why, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is praying for heaven to come to earth. Of course, we can't make heaven on earth just by our own efforts. Heaven is not simply just a really good place. Heaven is a divine or a supernatural place. And this is why at the very end of the story of redemption, on the very last pages of our Bible in Revelation 21 verse 3, it says that heaven and earth will be merged. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God, heaven, is with man earth. One day there will not be a distinct heaven and earth. There will only be one place. Heaven earth, if you want to call it, or the new creation is what the Bible calls it. And yet the impression that most people have about heaven and earth right now is that you can't really connect them. The impression most people have is that heaven is an entirely separate place that has totally lost contact with earth. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you probably imagine that heaven is just some imaginary made-up place, whereas the world that we live in is the real world. Or even for many Christians, the idea of heaven is that heaven is some future place where we will go when we die, but until then, we live here on earth. But the picture that the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself give of the connection between heaven and earth is quite different. To sum it up, heaven is a current reality that you can have access to right now by Jesus Christ. No, you can't live there completely right now. God is not going to transport you out of earth and place you in heaven. God still has you here for now. 
But God has given you, through Jesus Christ, spiritual or supernatural access to heaven, even while we were here on earth. With a couple brothers in the church, I was just reading Ephesians 2 this past week, and one verse that really struck me was Ephesians 2.6. And Ephesians 2.6 tells us that what God did to us when we became Christians was to raise us up and to seat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? Scripture is saying that even now, if you have trusted in Christ, you are seated in heaven. That is your place of residency. That is your citizenship. You are seated right now at the right hand of God. Heaven is not just some future place where you will go when you die. Heaven is a place where you are living right now in Jesus Christ that you have access to right now. Beloved, this is a greater awakening than what Neo had in the Matrix. It's a better awakening than what Harry Potter had when he realized what magic was. It's a better awakening than what the kids in the Chronicles of Narnia had when they walked through that wardrobe to realize that we can be in heaven even now when we are on earth. It's like gaining a whole new sense. It's like being able to see a whole new world that is all around us just waiting to be experienced. If you've felt that reality and you've realized that reality, then praise God, you have become a Christian. You are experiencing the reality of heaven on earth right now in your soul. But beloved, if I am speaking a foreign language to you right now, if you don't know what I could possibly mean by heaven being experienced on earth right now, then your eyes have not been opened. You have not yet come to know God. Or perhaps you're here before and you've never thought of yourself as a Christian before, but you can feel your eyes opening even now as I'm speaking. You think maybe this really could be true. Maybe it really could be the case that, that heaven is coming to earth right now and that I could experience this heaven on earth right now. If that is the case, beloved, then your eyes are being opened by the Holy Spirit even now. And I just pray that you will continue to walk through that doorway. Continue to know that God is calling you and you can trust everything that he has to say. Beloved, new creation is dawning upon the earth right now, and the invitation in Jesus Christ is that you can be a part of it. You can see the world that is to come even now through eyes of faith. Beloved, being a Christian or becoming a Christian is not primarily about following a certain set of rules. It's not primarily about behaving in a certain way. It's not even so much about believing or declaring certain things. As if our beliefs are the equivalent of having correct answers to math problems or history questions. No, beloved, being a Christian is primarily about entering this story with your life. This story of heaven coming to earth through Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is about really starting to believe that this present world is passing away and that there is a glorious new day that is rushing upon us that we can be a part of. And it is about living for that glorious day and not for this path, passing earth. It is about believing that in Jesus Christ, all the sinful, wicked, earthly, demonic powers have been defeated 
and that the old world is done with, and that God has unleashed massive new forces upon the earth, especially His Holy Spirit being poured out even now. And therefore, it is only by trusting in Him, by believing in this world that is coming and in the work of Jesus Christ, that we escape the trials and the punishment that are coming upon this world and we enter into heaven on earth. This is what it means to be a Christian, beloved. In other words, the call to be a Christian is the call to wake up. And it's a call to wake up to what is really happening right now that most of the earth is asleep to, that they are blind to, that they cannot see. All that I have just described really is happening. This is how the world really is. Even though most people are asleep to it, even though most people think the world is going on the same way today that it was 5,000 years ago, the fact is that everything changed in Jesus Christ. And there are things happening right now that we can only know about as we look with spiritual eyes, as we wake up to spiritual truth. The world is asleep to the fact that there is a judgment coming. And the fact that on the other side of that judgment, there is a place of perfect peace and rest for all who trust in God. And so like in the world of Harry Potter, we know that there really is magic all around, and it's just that most people can't see it. Or like in the world of the Chronicles of Narnia, we know that there really is a wardrobe with a glorious world on the other side, and we've seen it but other people just haven't seen it yet. And if you were to really live as a Christian, then you would live as if this present world is not all there is, that it is passing away, and that it is soon to be no more. You would live as if the coming age really is glorious and lasts forever, and that you can store up treasures there that will never fade or perish. You would live like you can interface with the Lord of heaven and earth right now. That even today you can cry out to him in prayer and you can hear his voice speaking to you in his word. Again, you wouldn't do these things because they're simple acts of obedience, because God expects you to or the church expects you to or anything like that. You would do them because you see this glorious story that God is writing, what is happening on earth right now, and because you want to be a part of it. And so you engage with this beautiful new kingdom that God is bringing upon the earth. You know, if you're part of some story where you realize that your downstairs neighbor is actually part of some secret terrorist network building an atomic bomb, you don't just then sit down and wonder what to do next or yawn and decide that you're just going to go ahead and have your dinner. No, you jump in. You have to start acting because you realize this incredible thing is happening right under your feet that you can't imagine was happening. And in the same way, beloved, if you've really come to believe the gospel story, if you've really come to believe this new age that Jesus Christ is bringing about by his death and resurrection, you can't just yawn and sit down and have your dinner. No, you want to get going. You want to realize this kingdom that God is bringing even now. And beloved, I will admit that this glorious story of redemption is hard to believe. 
It is so much easier to believe what our eyes tell us and what our ears tell us than to believe what is written in the Word of God. But beloved, this is why we need the church. This is why I need the church. I need to come to church each week to have Nate, to have Sharon tell me that Jesus really is doing what he said he would do. And if they didn't tell me that each week, then I would start to have my doubts. I would start to wonder, is this Jesus character really real? Did he really do everything that I read about in this book? Is God really active today like I see here? It seems quite unbelievable. But beloved, the church is to be this community of people that have all taken this journey through this wardrobe and we see what the world is really like. And so we continually help one another to believe and to live in that true world that is actually happening rather than living in the dream world that most of the world is living in. We proclaim and we know that heaven is real and that heaven is coming to earth through Jesus Christ. And we can either be a part of that and enjoy it or we can act like it's not happening and we can find ourselves missing out on it forever. Now, I I start this way because this background is so important if we want to understand what Isaiah has for us in today's passage. The main command of our passage today, as I've already mentioned, is to wake up. That command to wake up, you can see in the very first verse, 51 verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength. Now, in that verse, it is speaking to the Lord, but we'll see how the Lord reflects it back to us. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. And then that phrase is repeated again in 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And so God is calling his people to wake up to the reality that is all around them that so many of them are blind to that they cannot see. And so what I've just striven to communicate about heaven coming to earth is I'm trying to speak to you about what we have to wake up to, beloved. Those glorious things that we have to see. And that if we actually wake up to these things, then the world truly will be a totally different place from how we imagined it before. That the world will no longer just be a place of trees and hills and roads and cars, but the world will actually become a place where we see spiritual beings running all around, where we see the Holy Spirit moving all around us. A place where God is omnipresent and is inviting himself to come into our hearts. This is the true world that we live in, and this is why we need one another to wake us up to this world. My contention this morning is that this passage in particular calls us to wake up to three different things. It tells us to wake up to three different things, and at the end, it tells us two results that will come about in our lives if we will wake up to these three things. And so this is the rest of my message. We're going to look at these three things, and then we're going to see what would be the result if we actually woke up to those three things. The first thing that this passage tells us to wake up to is to wake up to how great God is 
and how God's greater works always lie before him. We are to wake up to how great God is and how greater works always lie before him. This is the message of 51 verses 9 to 17. This call to wake up is couched in an interesting way. The people of God are actually calling upon God to wake up and to do great things like he has done in the past. But then this section ends with God seemingly saying, it is not me that needs to wake up. It is you that needs to wake up. And so first look at the call of God's people in Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. It says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is just another name for Egypt. Who pierced the dragon? That's another name for Pharaoh. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? In other words, the people are calling to mind the Exodus, right? When God parted the waters and led them out of slavery, and God's people are saying, God, would you do that again? Would you wake up as in days of old, the generations of long ago? Beloved, so often we like to call out to God in the same way, do we not? Or I like to call out to God in the same way. Especially when I'm reading through the book of Acts, I just want to call out to God and say, God, would you work as in days of old? Would you be mighty as you've shown yourself to be mighty before? And yet in this passage, God is going to correct their notion. He's saying, what you need is not another exodus. What you need is something much greater that I can provide. And so in verse 11, we have this prophetic response to this prayer of the people. It says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So the prophet is saying, Your prayers will be answered. God will wake up and he will show you his strength. But then listen to how God responds to this prayer in verses 12 to 16. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself up to destroy And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am Yahweh your God who stirs up the sea so that that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is my name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. The thrust of God's response when they are asking him for a new exodus is God is saying that you are thinking too small. You are crying out for deliverance from Babylon when I have something ten times better to give you. He responds by saying, why are you fearing man? In other words, why are you worried about Babylon? 
Don't you remember that I have made heaven and earth? Heaven and earth are repeated two times in this passage, in verse 13 and verse 16. It says that you've forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. In other words, he's saying, you're asking me to take you out of Babylon when I can just recreate this whole cosmos? But you should be asking me for bigger things. And then again, in verse 16, that I've put my word in your mouth, covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. In other words, why do you ask small things of God? Indeed, God promises in his word that he will totally renew, he will totally remake heaven and earth. And that is really what we should be hoping for. Not just better health or a little bit more money or escape from our current troubles, but the things that God himself has truly promised. The charge to not fear man is also repeated two times. In verses 12 and 13, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass? And then God repeats how he's made heaven and earth. And it says, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself up to destroy. In other words, how could you fear man? How could you be worried about what is going on on the earth today when I am above the earth and above the heavens and can do everything that I wish on heaven above or on earth below? There is no reason for us to fret or to ask small things of God. See, God's saying, I I could answer your prayer and give you a new exodus. I could save you from the Babylonians. But then you just run into some new trouble next year or the year after. And so instead, cry out to me and ask for ultimate and perfect deliverance. Ask for deliverance from this fallen heaven and earth itself. You see, the people of Israel were not awake to the greatness of God. They prayed small prayers. They said, oh God, save us from the Babylonians. And God replies, I can do much greater things than this. Pray for ultimate rescue. And so God wants us to wake up to his power and recognize that God always has greater works planned than what he has already done. That he always has greater works planned than what we ourselves may be anticipating or expecting. And oh, beloved, how easy it is for us to fall into this trap. It's so easy for us to get our eyes focused on worldly things, to pray about worldly things, to pray for worldly help. And again, there's nothing wrong with praying for God to help in that way. It's just that there is a whole nother level of existence. There's a whole nother level of joy. There's a whole nother level of power that God has in store and that he is willing to pour out if we ask him. Beloved, when God sent Jesus into the world and when Jesus died and rose again, that was God giving us the offer to die to our sin here and now and to receive the power of his Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that our lives are to be a display of the new creation even now. We don't have to wait 
until we, until we die in order to see the deliverance of God. We can know his deliverance here and now if we will seek him. And similarly, we don't have to expect that the best days of the church are behind it, like the best days were 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. No, we believe that God has yet more in store because God is present in Jesus Christ and is working still. And so the first thing that we must wake up to is we must wake up to how powerful God is and how he has greater works that lie before him. The second thing that we are to wake up to is we are to wake up to the fact that God himself pleads our cause. God himself pleads our cause. This is verses 17 to 23. The last command to awake, we saw, was directed at God. But then God threw that command back on his people and said, wake up to my power. Wake up to how great I am. And not only is God now charging his people to wake up to his power, but he's also charging them to wake up to the fact that he is actually fighting for them. In verse 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In other words, God's people have experienced the heavy weight of God's punishment that God's wrath has been poured out on them. That's why they are in Babylon. And yet, even though this wrath has been poured out, they must still realize that they have no one to deliver them. And so beginning in verse 18, it says, There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has born, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And so the people of Israel must realize that even though God's judgment has been poured out on them, there is still no one to help. And so are they just to be totally devastated? Are they simply to have no hope? Well, listen to these verses of 21 and 22. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your God, Yahweh, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And so, beloved, part one of what God wants us to wake up to is to wake up to the fact that no one can possibly escape the wrath of God. But part two of what he wants us to wake up to is to wake up to the fact that precisely because of that, because there is no mere human being who can escape God's wrath, God has made a way and pleads our cause for us. And so we must be awake to the fact that God is willing to take the cup of wrath and remove it from us and drink it himself. And beloved, why is it important that we be awake to this? Well, it's important so that we don't despair. The fact that 
Jesus Christ has removed all of God's wrath from us is our only source of hope for the future of this world. Beloved, if Jesus had not done that, if Jesus had not taken God's wrath upon himself, that would mean only one thing, that God still has wrath to pour out on this earth. And if that is the case, then no matter how strong God may be, we have no reason to hope in him because we are still under the wrath of God. And yet this fact, this fact that God himself pleads our cause, that he has poured out all of his wrath in Jesus Christ means that we can now be as bold as lions. Because if all of God's wrath has been poured out, then God now has nothing whatsoever against us. Indeed, if he himself is pleading our case, that can only mean that God is entirely for us. And if God is entirely for us, then what do we have to fear? What here on earth below or in heaven above? Indeed, this is the exact point of verse 23. God says, and I will put it, that is that cup of wrath, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. He's saying other people will no longer be able to oppose you because my wrath is no longer against you. It will be against them. So do not fear, do not tremble, rather hope in God. Beloved, the fact that we no longer have any punishment to fear from God means that we can have joy forevermore. We must simply come to Jesus in faith and in the confidence that God's wrath truly has been removed and that he truly does plead our cause. The third and final thing that we are to wake up to is we are to wake up to the wonderful hope That God has for us. We are to run towards this hope that God has. The third wake up is in chapter 52, verse 1. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And so, after saying that He has pardoned their sin, God now calls them to wake up to all the benefits. There are at least three benefits that God wants them to wake up to. First, he wants them to wake up to the fact that they have clean, beautiful garments. That's verse 1. He says, Awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The second thing that God wants them to wake up to is the fact that they will have rest after years of bondage. That's verse 2. It says, shake yourselves from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And so these chains that were around their neck are there no more, and they are able once again to be seated at the table. And then lastly, they are to know that they will know the Lord. That's verse 6 of chapter 52. It says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know it is I who speak. God wanted his people to have their eyes open to all of these glorious benefits. And beloved, all of these things are now ours in Christ Jesus. 
the, the beautiful garment we have to put on is Christ Jesus himself. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That word put on is the same word that's used to put on a shirt or put on your clothes. We put on Jesus Christ. He is our beautiful garment. In Jesus Christ, we also have rest from years and years of bondage. Formerly, we were slaves of sin. But Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Beloved, we are not slaves anymore, but we have freedom. And, beloved, through Jesus Christ, we can know God's name. John 17, 26 says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so all of these good benefits, beloved, are ours in Jesus Christ. We must be awake to the promises that God has made to us. I think of my wedding day, and I hope every groom felt this way on their wedding day, but of course during the wedding ceremony, the groom is standing up front and then the bride appears in the back of the sanctuary. And when you're standing up front and your beautiful bride appears in the back, you don't just want to stand there up front and wait for this long ceremony to come to a close. No, you just want to run back there and say, okay, we're married, it's done, let's get this over with. Of course, you do stay because everybody's there to see the wedding. But in the same way, God has these promises and he doesn't want us just to stand still and just wait for these promises to slowly march towards us. No, he wants to run into those promises to say, I see your promises and I want to have them right now. And so when we come to see the grace of God in the gospel, we'll say, God, I see all these wonderful plans that you have for me. Just give them to me right now. I know that you want to know me like a bride knows her husband. Would, would you let me know you like that today? I know that you want to fill this world with justice and righteousness. Would you just start doing that on the earth today? I know you want every person to love their neighbor, and you especially want this household of faith to be a community of love. Would you just make the church a place of love today? Because we see all of God's good promises. And so, beloved, if we are awake to those things, then we will also have two magnificent results. The first one is described for us in verses 7 to 10. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places, O Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. So the first response, beloved, is just to rejoice. 
When we see that God is pleading our cause, when we see how magnificent His power is, when we see the promises that He has in store for us, we can only say, how beautiful are the feet who bring this good news. We want to be people who share this good news with others, this news of what God is doing on this earth that you can't see with your physical eyes. And we want to break out in singing because we know that this is true. We become people of the good news. People who celebrate in all that God is doing. And then the second response is given to us in verses 11 and 12. It says, depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, it's saying flee from earthly things. Flee from a life where you are not awake to spiritual realities Flee from a life that is only lived for the here and now. Depart from this world. Set your eyes on God and his power and go out from there. Touch no unclean thing and receive all of God's good promises for you. Know all of God's power toward you. Beloved, we have not yet seen the half of what God has prepared for those who love him. We have not yet seen the half of the redemption that Jesus Christ purchased for us on his cross. And so let's not sit back and rest as if we have already arrived, we have already come to know God just as he wants to be known. Rather, let us press on in enormous hope, knowing the great treasures that God has in store for us. Would you join me now in praying for our church and for praying for this world around us? Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you and praise you for your very great promises. Lord, we cannot fathom your greatness. We cannot fathom your power. We cannot even fathom your mercy or the promises that you have already given to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would wake us up to these things. That you would help us to see what is really true, And that in that way, God, we would come to live fully for you and know the complete joy of our salvation. Lord, as we consider these and other needs and the needs of the world around us, I ask that you would now hear our prayers.